Michael Hainsworth. Money laundering seems like a victimless crime. Most Canadians would have trouble explaining how hiding the proceeds of crime in our economy affects them, but it does. A millennial trying to buy a condominium in Vancouver, Toronto, or Montreal has felt the impact. So has a shopkeeper at the foot of that condo who expected far more foot traffic to her new store. In his report for the C.D. Howe Institute, anti-money laundering expert and member of Transparency International Canada's working group on beneficial ownership, Kevin Como explains why we fail to catch money launderers 99.9% of the time. We sat down to discuss the problem at the Institute's Toronto headquarters. He began by explaining why it's almost impossible to know exactly how much dirty money is being cleaned in Canada. It depends on the extent of money laundering coming into Canada. And in my C.D. Howe paper, um, I've made the argument that an estimate of the magnitude, as opposed to the exact amount, because no one can estimate the exact amount of money laundering, it's an invisible crime. But an estimate of the magnitude of the problem is likely somewhere between 100 and $150 billion every year is coming into Canada. And there's been some discrepancy as to just what that actual value is. The, the RCMP have their, their opinion, the IMF has its opinion, and I suppose to your point, because it is almost an invisible crime where there's a disconnect between where crime happens and the proceeds of that crime end up in a bank account somewhere or in the form of a home, um, that it's almost impossible to pin down just how much money there is floating around. Correct. It is impossible but it's incumbent upon uh, Canada to make a determination because without that, then we don't know the real magnitude of the problem. And once you get to the point, which I think I've made a fairly strong argument in, in the C.D. Howe e-brief, that it's somewhere between 100 and $150 billion a year. Once you get to that point, it's saying, okay, well then this money, much of which is going into real estate in Vancouver, Toronto, to a lesser extent, Montreal, is greatly uh, in artificially inflating real estate markets and adding to already inflationary parts of it. So that hurts key people like millennials now have basically zero chance of buying a home in the cities and towns that they grew up in if they're in those areas. But as well, it also greatly hurts shopkeepers and um, ordinary businessmen because money launderers, particularly international money launderers, leave their houses vacant. They aren't looking to make extra money. They already have loads of money. They're trying to launder it. They're trying to take what is a liability, this dirty money, it's a liability because if they get caught with it, it can be traced back to them and they can be prosecuted for their predicate crimes. So they want to get rid of that dirty money, i.e. by cleaning it up and making it worth more. So what do they do? They purchase large ticket items like real estate, in which they can, they can take uh, $4 million, $5 million, $10 million in a single transaction and turn that dirty money into a clean investment. And so, to your point, if that house is sitting vacant, not only is that not a home that someone could be renting or someone else could be buying to live in, but then there's a community that's missing a family where a shopkeeper isn't selling a product. Absolutely. You've hit the nail right on the head. And so why do we know uh, international money launderers want to leave the house vacant? Because the number one driver for money launderers is not maximization of profit like a normal investor. It's minimizing their risk. And so 
if you were to rent out the house, you end up increasing the risk significantly because your tenant will want to pay by check or by bank transfer. And then you're in the Canadian banking system. And to be very clear, our banks are terrific at fighting uh, money laundering in the world. It was reported just a couple of weeks ago, the Bank of Nova Scotia spent $300 billion in a year on fighting, on setting up their anti-money laundering systems to fight uh, international money laundering. So these guys don't want to go in the banking system. And if they use a property manager, well, under the uh, Income Tax Act, the property manager is required to withhold 25% of the rent. And then there's uh, required to submit that to Canada Revenue Agency, along with the name of the owner of the property, the beneficial owner of the property. So both of those are a no-go for international money launderers. So they're fine. They'll just leave that apartment vacant and, uh, and they'll leave it there for years. They're parking it there in Canada uh, in order for, for a safekeeping uh, for the future. In your report, you, you, you point out uh, three key elements. The fact that this is an invisible crime by an anonymous criminal. You've got one um, whole area dedicated to the money laundering rabbit hole that is this world. Uh, but I think you've touched on the third point that you make, which is privacy rights. There are rules and regulations in this country. There's also um, the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that ensures that we have the right to privacy. It's your suggestion that there may be a, a function of maybe we need to change these rules because the, the damage is greater if we don't shine a light on this. Exactly. So privacy rights are a fundamental part of uh, the uh, rights and freedoms that are guaranteed by our, uh, by our charter. And so people who object to a public registry claim it and infringe on their privacy rights. And they're right. Legislation requiring public disclosure of beneficial ownership would be an infringement on privacy rights granted under Section 8 of the Charter. But Section 1 of the Charter authorizes infringements of rights where it is reasonable and demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. And the Supreme Court of Canada set down four criteria to determine whether an infringement of a right is reasonable and demonstrably justifiable. There's only two of them that are in context of public registry that are contentious. That's the least, in, <coughs> the least intrusive alternative and proportionality between the effects and measures. The least intrusive alternative to a public registry is a private registry. Anything less than a registry it is just woefully inadequate. It'll just be doing more of what hasn't, but the same that doesn't work. No, uh, I'm saying it has to be a public registry because a private registry just doesn't do the job. Why not? So there's two reasons. First of all, the, the reason people are going to a private registry is because they want to protect privacy uh, rights of individuals. And they say, well, let's use the least intrusive one. It's less intrusive if we have a private registry. Well, there's two problems with that. First of all, that... If you're to use a private registry properly, you have to, to make it more effective, you have to widen the access to more and more people. Now, 
the um, recommendation made in the FINA report, that's by the House of Commons uh, Finance Parliamentary Committee, and they put out a report uh, last fall, and they recommended a private registry, and they said it would have access by the more than 31,000 reporting entities in Canada. Reporting entries are entities are the financial institutions, but also designated uh, non-financial uh, businesses and professions. That, that'd be... Um, accountants, that would be um, that would be your real estate agents, etc. And they're saying, so they should have access to it. And they would need access in order to meet their obligations to determine beneficial ownership. The problem is, even if you, you know, put in safeguards, let's say you have only three people from each of those 31,000, now you're talking many tens of thousands of people that will have access to this so-called private registry. So it's not so private. But even more importantly, in the world where you have a huge amount of international money laundering coming into Canada, and the reason of which I set out in the C.D. Howe um, article, uh, then you, a private registry just doesn't, just doesn't work, just doesn't meet the needs of a public registry. That, that's because a public registry can be accessed by people all around the world. And I suppose then you're talking about the value of having non-government organizations who are doing research into this issue, journalists, they would need access to that kind of public database of who owns what and where. Absolutely. So you point out, however, that 99.9% of this type of crime goes undetected because the disconnect between when the crime happens and the money that comes from it and the point at which it's laundered. how do we even get to the point where there's a red flag being raised in the first place? Well, that's very much the point, that red flags can't be raised because we don't have enough information. What you want to do is to increase the flow of beneficial ownership information two ways. One, you want to have it on a public registry so that you can send that information out to the entire world. And two, you want to have a way for that information to come back. What I've recommended is not only a public registry, but one with a confidential tip line, much like Crime Stoppers. And you would use that in order for people from distant lands to be sending in that information to law enforcement agents in Canada. But equally important, from many of those countries that are sending dirty money into Canada, those are often um, autocracies, kleptocracies. They're places where they don't have a strong rule of law. So if you're... If you have a private registry, the only way you're going to get information from those other countries is to go through the set legal channels. You're going to go to, you know, you're going to go to Russia, you're going to go to Saudi Arabia, uh, Indonesia, and you're going to ask that, let's say it's a corrupt regime, and you're going to ask them to be giving you more information about a suspicious transaction in Canada by one of the um, mayors in their town that's receiving kickbacks. They're not going to give you the right information because the law enforcement agencies in those jurisdictions are also part of the corrupt regime. So we have little puzzle pieces um, that help create the picture of money laundering at the destination. And of course, for us, the concern is the destination being Canada. Um, it's your suggestion that one of the more effective ways um, is to 
enable police to turn to their informants to when when someone's arrested you know it feels like an episode of law and order you yeah. put the screws to the guy yeah. so that he gives you as much information as possible about where that money ends up going but he's only going to give you a little bit because he only knows a little bit yes that's right so that's where you catch someone committing the predicate crime so that means the crime would have had to been committed in canada and so it, let's say you catch someone who's a mid-level drug dealer and you catch him. So you say, okay, we're going to send you away for, you know, five, eight years. But if you tell us, you know, key information so that we can follow the money, then we will, you know, help you get a reduced sentence. It's really showing that if you start with the predicate crime, then you, you realize that, yeah, you've got a shot of following the money. It's still very difficult because you're going to have to go through a whole bunch of different corporations and different tax havens. So they'll have a company that's set up in Cayman Islands that is owned by a trust that is in BVI, that is owned by a corporation in the Seychelles. And so even with the help of that guy, you still have to go through that long trail, that rabbit hole. And if you get close, the money launchers are just going to add two or three more companies and trusts. So it's still very difficult. But what's even tougher is if the predicate crime isn't committed in Canada. Right. And in my paper, I argue that an overwhelming majority of this money is coming from outside of Canada. If that's the case, law enforcement agencies aren't even aware of the predicate crime. There is no one that they can lean on for the information. The only thing they've got is a suspicious transaction. They've got a real estate um, transaction in Vancouver and they think it's suspicious. So they go to the buyer of the house and they say, tell us more. And the buyer says, I don't have to tell you anything. And they go, well, we want more. And he goes, no, under the Charter of Rights, I have the right to remain silent. I'm not going to say anything. So they can do a few things. They can, you know, ask the realtor for more information. They can ask the bank where the money came from. But then they're just going down the rabbit hole without even a crime. So if they go to the foreign courts in those other jurisdictions, whether, you know, it's in Cayman Island or the Seychelles, they don't even have a crime in which they're going to a court. Yeah, we're investigating this crime. They're saying, no, we're going there because we have a suspicious transaction about a real estate deal. The rules that law enforcement must follow vary depending on whether there's an actual crime that's proven to have taken place, a dead body, by example, exactly. versus we suspect there might be a dead body somewhere. Well said, well said. That's exactly the problem. See, money laundering is a derivative crime. So money laundering doesn't exist by itself. It's part of the underlying, what we call the predicate crime. So that would be um, kickbacks to government officials. It would be um, sale of drugs. It would be extortion. And the money from that is then um, sent through a number of different jurisdictions around the world to try and make it harder to trace the money back to the original predicate crime. And so that's called money laundering. They're trying to wash it. And one of the ways they wash it is much like, you know, apparently Al Capone did back in the 30s. He had, um, he actually had laundromats. And so it, it was a heavy um, industry where there was a lot of cash. You'll see the same thing with restaurants. Is that the etymology of money laundering, that Al Capone actually had laundromats? Don't quote me on that. I've heard that. I've never Googled it or checked it out. But I've heard yeah, um, one guy talking about that, that. That is how you get dirty money in washing. I don't know if that's correct. But what we do know is that one of the oldest ways of, 
of hiding the trail of your illicit proceeds is to mix that with a legitimate business, particularly one that's high cash. So restaurants, you see a restaurant that has, you know, hardly any people going there, but it's been there for years. A little suspicious. You know, it may just be they love cooking. I don't know. Tell me about the political will, because in November of 2018, the House of Commons Standing Committee on Finance filed its report on money laundering. Um, and months earlier, the CD Howe had put together some recommendations on how to address these types of issues that you're bringing up. Uh, and none of those measures were taken into consideration in the final report. Is there the political will to address money laundering, considering 99.9% .9 of the time they're getting away with it? That's a great point. So the, the C.D. Howe commentary by uh, Denis Meunier was excellent. And he had a number of uh, key recommendations, four of them. And um, the so my paper focuses on two of them, because what I did in my paper was say, OK, there's a whole bunch of ideas out there in the world of the best way to move forward. Why don't we just go back to first principles? If you do that, then you say, so what are the advantages that money launderers enjoy that make it so that we fail to catch them 99.9% .9 of the time? It's not that the RCMP or other law enforcement agencies are doing a bad job. They have the same statistics down in the States and, and the UN estimates that it's 99.8% globally. It's that they have three distinct advantages. They had the advantage of invisibility of both the credit predicate crime and the crime of money laundering, the anonymity of both the perpetrator of the, um, of the predicate crime and the enabler of the money laundering crime, and then it also the difficulty of tracing those funds. So a public registry addresses the first two, the invisibility of the crime and the anonymity of the perpetrators. And so key objectives from that should be to reduce the anonymity and to reduce the invisibility. So how do we do that? Well, what we have to do is create what I've said in my article, a public registry, which does that much more effectively than a private registry. So a, a public registry would need key things for it. It would need to be internet accessible and user usable by anyone for free, no paywall. That's all around the world. It required disclosure of information that maximizes the ability to connect the perpetrator of the predicate crime to the registered nominee, right? Because remember, when we say we wanted a public registry, when we want you know, the beneficial owner to be registered on let's say our land titles or when they incorporate a company, we want to know who the beneficial owner is. The problem is money launderers lie, they're criminals. So they're gonna put the name of someone who is who they completely trust. It can't be someone they don't trust because that person could easily rat them out, right? They'll know that, oh my God, this is dirty money. So it's gonna be their wife, it's going to be their son or daughter, someone very close to them, maybe a very best friend, possibly a close business associate. So then doesn't that negate the value of a public registry if people are just going to lie about what's on it? That's exactly the point why it needs to be public. Because in his home country, a whole bunch of this is international money laundering. So in his home country, there are people who know that this mayor of their town is receiving massive kickbacks. And they may know who his wife and daughter are and some of his close, closest friends. 
but they don't know that he has incorporated a company in Ontario and purchased um, a you know eight million dollar home in Toronto. But what they will know, if you have a public registry, is they'll have the ability to just search the name of that guy or his family members or his close friends, and voila, they've got it. Then from there, you go down a whole different rabbit hole of figuring out why that person seems to own an $8 million home. Absolutely. And even if they, so I've said, use a tip line to get it back to Canadian authorities. But even if they just raise it in, the, in their home country, it's an authoritarian regime, but, you know, they need to have the cover of authenticity. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not real, but, but they need to have at least that cover. And so when a journalist gets hold of that in their home country and then publishes that this guy who's making the equivalent of about $32,000 a year has bought a eight or $10 million home in Canada in the name of his wife or his daughter or son, that has huge consequences. This undermines their authority. And that is key for Canada because once those money launderers realize that the risk of detection is greatly increased in Canada, they're going to go somewhere else. How do we get the public on side on this? Because we started this conversation by talking about the fact that money laundering has an impact on the housing markets of the major centers in this country. But I don't know very many millennials who are going to be able to afford an $8 million house. But it's all the way down. It's all the way down. Many of these money launderers are just buying a whole bunch of condos, a whole bunch of, of uh, single dwelling homes. They're buying them everywhere. I mean, remember, if you've got 100 to $150 billion coming into Canada every year, add that up for the last 10 to 12 years, what number do you come to? I don't even want to say the number because it's just so scary, but do the math. It's huge. And so that's not just going into the very expensive homes. It's going all the way down because Canada is such an easy target. And so we are way behind the other Western liberal democracies. And one of the key things that you have to remember is money launderers from Western liberal democracies, where we have a strong rule of law, they're laundering their money in Western liberal democracies. None of these money launderers want to send their money into corrupt regimes and that because they're not cleaning it. As soon as it comes out, it's got you know red flags all over the place. The banking community is all over that. So that increases the risk of detection, which is the last thing they want. But the other half of the world the illiberal democracies or not even democracies, the kleptocracies, corrupt regimes, or even regimes with just a restricted currency, they're not laundering their money in the, that half of the world. They're laundering their money into the Western liberal democracies for two reasons. One, for better cleaning. No cleaning if you send money from Russia into Saudi Arabia or into Iran. You still have red flags all over it. So what they want to do is get it into the financial, international financial system and somehow get it into a Western liberal democracy because then when it comes out, it doesn't have red flags all over it. And two, and this is the most important one to keep in mind, is that if they leave their money at home, they always have the risk of someone closer to power confiscating their assets. So they're sending it to Western liberal democracies for long-term storage. And they're going to send it to the Western liberal democracy that has the weakest anti-money laundering systems. And that is 
right up near the top, Canada. Why? What is it about Canada that has made us such a destination compared to other Western liberal democracies? Yeah, it's a fantastic point. So where are we on the on the list of things? So let's just let's just look at what happens if someone wants to invest dirty money from overseas into Canadian real estate. Okay. So Canada allows corporations, trusts, and nominees to purchase real estate without disclosing beneficial ownership. Now, British Columbia has just introduced new legislation that is fantastic, that they're asking for beneficial ownership to be disclosed. And, and I can't say enough good things about what they're doing out in that province just for real estate. They need to expand it also at, for the incorporation of a company, the formation of a trust, but it's a great start way ahead of the federal government, way ahead of Toronto. As well, realtors throughout Canada are not required to collect beneficial ownership information, and they have a dismal record of complying with the present minimal money, anti-money laundering obligations because they're conflicted. If they're to report a suspicious transaction, what happens to the $30,000, $50,000 commission? Right. It's put at risk. Beneficial ownership is not available for public scrutiny. Solicitor client privilege obligations in Canada prohibit lawyers from disclosing beneficial ownership information to regulators or reporting their clients' suspicious transactions. Which I imagine is why a lot of lawyers end up being the ones on the documents. They do. Now, let's be clear. The law societies throughout Canada have uh, pretty stringent rules on participating in that kind of thing. And they're also requiring, the new rules came out last fall, requiring lawyers to be checking beneficial ownership. The problem is the lawyers don't even have the tools to do that because they don't have access to a public registry, which would greatly help them with their ability to meet their own um, know-your-client rules under the new Law Society rules. But even if those rules are in, they can't report a suspicious transaction because it's solicitor client privilege. And then, so the only part that's saving us is the banks. And the banks, as I said before, are terrific. They have strong anti-money laundering protections. But they're only as strong as their weakest link when it comes to wiring money from overseas. Now, they vet the correspondent banks that send in uh, money to them so that they have substantially similar anti-money laundering protections. But it is not difficult to get money into a bank without them knowing it, even the great Canadian banks, merely by using what's called trade-based money laundering. Now, trade-based money laundering is just, as we talked about before, where you mix a business along with um, an illegitimate funds. So they can set up um, a company where they are, they have a restaurant and they have um, drug money, and each night when they deposit their restaurant receipts, they just put in another, you know, $8,000 of the cash they get from the drug money, and it goes to the bank, and the bank sees a restaurant. You know, they don't know. Or they can do it by undervaluing and overvaluing inventories to send the money to Canada, as we talked about previously. You know, so there are so many ways to get into the system. The banks are carrying just basically water for the rest of the country. If we set in a public registry, if we also particularly have this declaration of beneficial ownership by all customers of reporting entities so that they have to actually be on the hook for when they tell the bank whether they are or aren't um, the beneficial owner of that bank account, it not only greatly reduces 
or greatly increases our chances of catching the bad guys, but it also greatly protects the reputational risk for these banks that are doing so much. That's because now, right now, if, if a customer of a bank lies to them and says, yeah, I'm the beneficial owner when they're not, they're a front guy for a drug company, and the bank does its checks and it couldn't prove um, that he wasn't the beneficial owner, doesn't have access to the public registry, and besides, you know, this guy's faked ID and that kind of stuff. If it blows up, that guy can't even be charged because it's not a crime in Canada. It's only if he did got something of value for it, i.e., if he got a loan from the bank. Money launderers don't need loans. Right. They have massive amounts of money. And so the banks have huge reputational risk. That's why they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars every year. And we can lower that risk just by saying, if you lie, when you give a reporting entity, including the banks, when you lie, when they open up their accounts about your beneficial ownership, that's a crime. And that's a crime that there'll be a sanction and not just a fine, but the potential to go to prison. Now the beneficial ownership information that the bank's getting, that the FinTrack is getting, is much more credible. It's much higher quality. And the great thing is, remember we talked about that money laundering rabbit hole? Think of what the RCMP can do with that declaration, right? By the guy, all you have to do is prove it's false. You don't have to go down the money laundering hole anymore. You, now you've got that predicate crime, another crime, above the money laundering rabbit hole. And then you put the screws to that guy, Absolutely. like the Law & Order episode, well, you've got another piece of that puzzle that gives you the image. Well put, exactly right. Kevin, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for your time and insight. You're welcome, it was my pleasure. Kevin Como is a retired lawyer and anti-money laundering expert. He is also a member of Transparency International Canada's working group on beneficial ownership. For further insight and analysis on money laundering in Canada, Read Kevin's report at cdhow.org. Still ahead at the C.D. Howe Institute. Advancing gender equity and governance in the investment management industry. On Tuesday, May 14th, the Institute will host a roundtable luncheon with Gillian Brown of the Ontario Teachers' Pension Plan, Joyce Chang of J.P. Morgan Chase, and Benjamin Lambert, the Interim Head of Sustainable Investing at the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.